0: Our Old Testament lesson comes from Jeremiah chapter 6. Jeremiah chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Hear now the word of the Lord. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Therefore, I am full of the wrath of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. Pour it out upon the children in the street and upon the gatherings of young men also. Both husband and wife shall be taken, the elderly and the very aged. Their houses shall be turned over to others, their fields and wives together. For I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest... Everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. I set watchmen over you saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention. Therefore hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what will happen to them. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words. And as for my law, they have rejected it. What use to me is frankincense that comes from Sheba, or sweet cane from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor are your sacrifices pleasing to me. Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, I will lay before this people stumbling blocks against which they shall stumble. Fathers and sons together, neighbor and friend shall perish. Thus says the Lord, Behold, a people is coming from the north country. A great nation is stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. They lay hold on bow and javelin. They are cruel and have no mercy. The sound of them is like the roaring sea. They ride on horses, set in array as a man for battle against you, O daughter of Zion. We have heard the report of it. Our hands fall helpless. Anguish has taken hold of us, pain as of a woman in labor. Go not out into the field, nor walk on the road, for the enemy has a sword. Terror is on every side. O daughter of my people, Put on sackcloth, and roll in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son, most bitter lamentation, for suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. I have made you a tester of metals among my people, that you may know and test their ways. They are all stubbornly rebellious, going about with slanders. They are bronze and iron, all of them act corruptly. The bellows blow fiercely, the lead is consumed by the fire. In vain the refining goes on, for the wicked are not removed. Rejected silver they are called, for the Lord has rejected them. This is the word of the Lord. Thirty-four years ago, I was a freshman in college and sitting with my guitar as I read through the book of Jeremiah. And these words here in Jeremiah 6 echoed through my soul. And a tune started coming to mind as I played. If you've ever heard me tuning my guitar on a sunday morning you've heard it before now when i was a freshman in college i had no idea i would ever be a pastor but to whom shall i speak and give warning echoed in my soul stand by the crossroads and look ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls i Took snippets and chunks of the passage, I didn't try to do all of it, and the refrain for my little song came from chapter eight, verse eight. How can you say we are wise for we have the law of the Lord when the lying pen of the scribes has handled it falsely? The wise we put to shame, they have rejected the word of the Lord. What kind of wisdom do they have? So every Sunday morning as I'm tuning my guitar, I have Jeremiah's warning to the preacher running through my mind and something that just over the years, I, I never said this, but it's something that it's there and it's something that when we come to hear the word of the Lord, we need to remember that just having the scriptures is not enough to have the word of the Lord. This is something that Paul will point out in 1 Thessalonians. The word of the Lord means more than just the Bible. The word of the Lord is especially the preaching of the word and even more than especially the word himself who became flesh and dwelt among us. Our New Testament lesson comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. First Thessalonians chapter two. Hear now the word of the Lord. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own souls, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you in person, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. This is the word of the Lord. you are our glory and joy. Uh, Paul in Galatians says that he is determined to boast or to glory in nothing but the cross of Christ. So what does he mean when he says, you are our glory and joy? Paul's going to connect you and Jesus. Jesus. How can Paul only glory in the cross of Christ and glory in you? Because you have been connected to Jesus. And because you are connected to Jesus, you're part of what God is doing in history. And that's not just for Paul. That's for all of us. This last year has been easily the most difficult year of my life. But I would not trade it for anything under heaven. I've learned a a little bit about myself, but much more about the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And a significant part of what I've learned is actually what we talked about last time in the previous part of the chapter, when when Paul says, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own souls. It's not just the word self there, it's it's the word soul. Uh, If you just think about, if you say, I must take care of myself, that's going to have a very much of a isolation, me, I must take care of myself. But if you say, I must take care of my soul, that is pointing to the fact that in our souls, we, are, we belong in body and soul, both in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The self, in, especially in modern culture, you know, I must protect myself. But my soul? <laughs> How can I protect my soul? God is my refuge, my fort, my shield. Preaching the gospel is a great and glorious thing. But Paul says that he and Silas and Timothy, that they were pleased to impart not only the gospel of God, but our own souls. How do you impart your soul to another person? We talk about this. We talk about somebody being a soulmate. Somebody who's who's like a second soul. Somebody who's, who's so close that you see You connect at the deepest level. Somebody who really gets you. That's how, I mean, this is something that people do this all the time. You don't have to be a Christian to impart your soul to somebody else because people are built to connect. But when we are joined to the life of the Son of God, when the Holy Spirit joins us to the life of God, then we are joined to one another as well. And so Paul says, not only do we impart to you the gospel of God, but also we impart to you our very souls. Very imperfectly, with much weakness and frailty, with much sin and repentance, we impart to you our own souls. It's how Paul and Silas and Timothy walked with the Thessalonians. It's how we as your elders seek to work with you and walk with you. It's how every Christian is to walk before God. And and notice first how Paul thanks God in verse 13, how he thanks God constantly for how the Thessalonians received the word of God. Gratitude is important. As I've talked with other pastors over the years, I need to say more often how grateful I am that both of the churches I've pastored have been churches who received the word of the Lord as the word of God. When you hear the word of God, you seek to put it in practice. Thanks be to God. But what does Paul mean when he says that their preaching is the word of God? We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God. What does, what does Paul mean by this? Well, throughout the Bible, there are three things that are called the word of God. The scriptures are sometimes referred to as the word of God. You see this in Acts 15 and John 15. Now, in John 1 and 1 John 1 and 1 Peter 1 and other places as well, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God, is referred to as the word when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But by far, the most common meaning of the word of God is preaching. Just to give you a couple examples, in in Acts 4.31 When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So plainly, it's what they're speaking, it's what they're preaching. They're not just reading the Bible, they're preaching the word. In the same way, in Acts 6, verse 7, it says that the word of God continued to increase. That's an interesting way of putting it. How does the word of God increase? Well... And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word of God increased because more and more people were preaching it. Paul uses this way of talking regularly throughout his epistles in Ephesians 1. In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit notice how the spirit is given as the presence of the exalted Christ with his people and the spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory now, we don't this is very much related to Paul's theme of hope that we've been seeing in 1 Thessalonians because our hope what is the thing that we're aiming at our hope is is there's a very strong future aspect to hope if you already had it, what you were hoping for, you wouldn't call it hope. If you say, hey, I hope I get a a, a new game for Christmas. If you already have the game, you're not going to say, I hope I get a game. Well, I, well, I already have the game. Why would I hope for what I already have? So hope always has a future focus. But part of Paul's point is that in the gift of the Holy Spirit, that hope is already a present reality in the life of the believer. And Paul sees his preaching as nothing less than the Word of God. You might say, well, okay, Paul's an apostle, so he could say that, but what about other preachers? Well, Hebrews 13, verse 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So it's it's not just the apostles. Every minister of the gospel who preaches is to be speaking the word of God. Now, the apostolic standard is the apostolic standard and all other words are measured by that. But every time a pastor faithfully preaches the scriptures, he is speaking the word of God. So scripture is the word of God, preaching is the word of God, and of course, the second person of the Trinity, our Lord Jesus Christ, is the word of God. And these three aspects of the word are woven together so that at heart they are really one just as God himself is one. Because at the heart of everything it's the word of God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Notice those two things are both really important. We often times focus on the second one, on the word was God, yes. The word is God from all eternity. But the word is also with God. What does that mean? Well, the father is not the son. The son is not the father. They, are, they, are, they were with each other in the beginning. We have, this is the mystery of the Trinity that we have one God who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And scripture and preaching are the word of God because they bear witness to the eternal word. Scripture is the word of God because God inspired it. But if you abstract scripture from Jesus, then you will go astray. As Jesus himself told the Jews in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. If you're studying the scriptures, but you're not seeing Jesus, that you're not seeing the eternal word, then you're not actually reading the word of God. It's only when you see Jesus that you're reading the word of God. Protestants sometimes say that the Bible is the supreme authority in our churches but that's not quite the right way to say it. Our Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest, can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the scripture. Notice how they are very careful if you think about it, this makes sense. What is the highest authority in the world? Or, just period, what's the highest authority? God himself. So if you say the highest authority is the Bible, well, that would make the Bible God. And the Bible is not God. God is God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So who who is the highest authority? The Holy Spirit. Now, how do you know what the Holy Spirit says? Ah, glad you asked that question. It's what he speaks in the scripture. This is the authoritative word that, that where, where we get to see and hear what God is saying. How do we know what the Holy Spirit says about an issue? Look at what he says in the scriptures. But then preaching is also the word of God because what we do in the proclamation of the gospel is preach the word I am sent as a herald by King Jesus to announce to you the good news that his kingdom has come. So you you can say it this way. We know the word, Christ Jesus, only from the scripture and preaching that is based on scripture. We know the written word, the scriptures, only through the word, Christ Jesus, who makes the preached word possible. And we know the preached word only by knowing the word himself, who is attested in the scriptures. So all these three different aspects of the word are woven together very carefully by God. And our shorter catechism refers to this in question 89 when it says that the spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. The incarnation of the Word, when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, is what establishes Scripture and preaching as the Word of God. But He comes to us only in the Scripture and preaching. Now, when I say preaching, I'm not just referring to what happens on Sunday morning. As we heard from Paul last time, we were ready to share with you not only the Gospel of God, but also our own souls. Because when the Word became flesh, he joined himself to our humanity. And when he poured out his Holy Spirit upon us, he joined us to himself. If you are in Christ, then you have been joined to the life of the eternal word. And so the the preaching of the word comes to us both publicly, here in the gathered worship of God, but also throughout the week in what David Paulison likes to call the, the interpersonal ministry of the word. And that's what every Christian shares in. What you are doing throughout the week, as you speak to one another, is you are speaking the word of God to one another, as Paul will say, let him who speaks speaks speak as it were the very words of God. What you're doing as you encourage each other, what you do as you admonish each other, you are speaking the word of God one to another. Pastor Pinnegar and I may be the ones who preach most regularly. Dr. Sunshine is also an ordained minister, so he preaches for us from time to time. But every Christian has been joined to the life of the eternal word. And so the words that you speak to one another are life-giving. At least they should be. And when our words are not life-giving, then we need to repent and believe the gospel. But this is also why we try to be careful not to just spout our own opinions from the pulpit. Because the preacher is not here to just tell you, I'm not here to tell you what I think. If I, if I had to tell you what I think, I'd, I, I would have retired from, from the pulpit years ago, decades ago, because I don't have much to say. If a preacher just gives you his opinion and cannot show this is what God says, then he's not preaching faithfully. And that's why Paul and Hebrews emphasize the importance of how the preacher lives as well. It goes back to what Jesus said in the Great Commission. He didn't just say, teach them all that I've commanded you. He said, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. It's not enough to impart the gospel of God. The preacher must also impart his own soul. Or as Hebrews had said, Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. It's what we saw last time, how Paul and Silas and Timothy lived before the Thessalonians. Verse 7, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Verse 11 and 12, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And when we fail at this, we repent and believe the same gospel that we preach. But also notice what Paul says at the end of verse 13, because he says, you've received this and accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. The word of God is at work in you who believe. Faith is necessary to receive all the benefits of Christ. You have to believe the word that you hear. And without faith it is impossible to please God. I realize this can feel impossible. When you're plagued by doubts, you feel as though I I can never believe. So what do you do? Notice how Paul says it. The word of God, which is at work in you believers. The preaching of the word operates by faith. But notice what's at work? The word. The word is at work. In you who believe. If it was just the Word of man, that wouldn't accomplish much. But it's not just the Word of men, it's the Word of God. And God's Word is living and active, sharper than a two edged sword, as Hebrews 4 tells us. The Word of God discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Because the preached Word is the working of the living and active Word the very word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And that's why it's important that when you're facing doubts, you need to continue hearing the preaching of the word because Jesus is at work in the preaching of his gospel. The Holy Spirit is the presence of the exalted Christ with his people. So when you are doubting, when you are wondering, keep listening, keep hearing, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And we see the fruit of faith in what happens in those who hear. Notice what happens with those who believe. For you, brothers, verse 14, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Wherever the gospel goes, the result is the same. The preaching of the word creates a division between those who believe and those who don't. Isaac had twin sons. Jacob believed. Esau didn't. Moses sent out 12 spies. Two believed. Ten didn't. Jesus had 12 apostles. Eleven believed. One didn't. Hey, at least the ratio is going in the right direction. But over the course of the first couple centuries in the church, a remarkable number of Jews believed in Jesus. But some refused to believe likewise by the end of the 4th century around half the roman empire believed but many did not and the gospel has continued to go forth throughout the nations and the pattern has continued to repeat for you brothers became imitators of the churches of god in christ jesus that are in judea for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the jews paul's point here is it's it's not a you know, some have said oh paul's being anti-semitic Actually, Paul's saying that this is the way everybody is. That the the Jews are like that, yes, and so are the Gentiles. Because in Thessalonica, you've got people, your countrymen here, who are acting just the same way that the Jews did there. Wherever the gospel goes, this is what happened. It's what Jesus said would happen. If they hated me, they'll hate you. A servant is not greater than his master. Now, that doesn't mean that we should get a persecution complex. If we whine and grumble about being persecuted then we're not actually imitating our brothers who imitated Christ. You don't hear grumbling coming out of Judea. You hear their faith and their patience and their steadfast endurance. And we should rejoice that we are counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Because if you notice in verses 15 and 16, Paul's point here is that those who oppose the gospel oppose all mankind. You know, sometimes... If we think of this as, oh, they're opposing us, then that makes, and we're the special people. Paul says, no, no, no. When they oppose the gospel, they're opposing all mankind. What does he mean? Now, He says it this way, verse 15, because they had killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. And part, part of Paul's point here is that God will deal with them. That's his job, not ours. We may certainly imitate Paul when he appealed to Roman law to protect the church, but we need a clear perspective on what's happening. Those who oppose you, those who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, displease God and oppose all mankind. Their fundamental problem is that they displease God. They do not love God with their whole heart. All sin is first and foremost against God. What's the biggest problem in America today? We don't love God. All the other issues flow from that one. And when we displease God, then we oppose all mankind. When we fail to love God with all our heart, then, by definition, we also fail to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so those who persecute the church oppose all mankind. Because the church is the place where mankind finds salvation. So those who oppose the preaching of the word are hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Anything that gets in the way of the mission of God, God's purpose in bringing the gospel of Jesus to the nations, is hostility against mankind. But Paul says that God's wrath has come upon them at last. What does he mean by it's happened now? How has god 's wrath come upon them? Well, it, it started on the day of Pentecost, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist had said that Jesus would baptize with the Spirit and with fire, that Jesus baptism would be a spirit and fire baptism that would save his people and consume all his enemies and that 's what happened at Pentecost and thereafter for it 's what happened to Saul, Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, when he met Jesus, Saul was destroyed. Paul will say later in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. The wrath of God is utterly destroying all his and our enemies. In Paul's case, he was destroyed by conversion. And that's what we pray for. But if they will not convert, they will be destroyed by their own refusal to convert. And either way, God's wrath has come upon them at last. But I don't want to end there today because Paul immediately points them to the present reality of hope in their midst. Notice in verse 17 that Paul says they were only torn apart in person, not in heart. You know, when you're away from people you love, you there's still a connection. There's still, you're, you're not totally pulled apart. And Paul says, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you in person. It's the same word both times. That, and in both cases, the you is plural and the, and the word person is singular. So we, we wanted to, and that's why ESV says face-to-face. It's a good translation. But it's the same phrase basically both times. I wanted to see, well, you were pulled apart in person and I wanted to see you in person. Now, we'll look more at the details next time. um, But for today, I just want to focus on the theme that Paul is drawing through the chapter of how the Word of God connects us in our souls, in our hearts, so that in being joined to the life of God, we are joined to one another. That's why I say in the outline, the present reality of hope is embodied in the church. Our hearts are united even when we are distant. Uh, Yes, he says, Satan is a nuisance. Satan hindered us. But for Paul, Satan is always a temporary nuisance because Jesus has won the great victory. I had a lovely conversation with a brother pastor the other day. He's going through some deep waters in his own personal life right now, but he is seeing more and more the present reality of hope. He, He told me that for 20 years in the ministry, he tended to focus on the someday of our hope. When Jesus returns, then okay, yeah, that'll be great. But he realized I've been missing the present reality of that hope. And indeed, this is this is where Paul wants to encourage the Thessalonians and he wants to encourage you. Think of how Paul says this in verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? You might think, oh, well, that's talking about someday. After all, it's talking about the coming of our Lord Jesus, the crown, the joy, the hope, ah, on that day. But Paul's not using future tense. It's present tense. What is our hope? We keep seeing how First Thessalonians is all about faith, hope, and love, and especially about hope. Faith is that which unites us to Christ. This is how we enter God's kingdom. Love is that which characterizes the Christian life. This is how we live in God's kingdom. But hope is that which motivates the Christian life. This is why we stay in God's kingdom. Why do I persevere through the most painful year in my life? Why remain silent? It's so tempting to try to vindicate myself. But that's not the way of Christ. What is my hope? What is my joy? What is my crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. I'm grateful to our Lord Jesus that he he prompted Paul by his spirit to use the plural for this whole epistle. It reminds us that the Apostle Paul did not think of himself more highly than he ought. He thought of Silas and Timothy, his co-workers, as fully sharing in his glory and joy. And so I will say that you are our glory and joy. You are the glory and joy of myself and Pastor Pinnaker and our, our brother elders, Mark and Jay and Rex and Jacob and Dave and Pastor Joel. And for that matter, those elders who have gone before us, like Rolf and Shane and Andrew and Stephen, for Pastor John Bonomo, Pastor Blair Smith. You are our glory and joy. I, I like how Greg Beale says this. Just as parents have hope and confidence that the raising of their children will reach a successful result, so Paul has hope and confidence as they parent their spiritual children. Not only Paul's joy, but also his hope lies in the victorious eschatological outcome of his reader's faith. That, that, that's where this is going, but that's where it, it's what's already happening now, enabling them through the Spirit to believe and obey. So think about it this way. Is it selfish to strive for something with the goal of fulfilling your own joy and happiness? No. Seeking, striving for something that will fulfill your own joy and happiness is a wonderful thing. It is a good thing when we desire our own joy in the way that God says true joy comes because it pleases God and is the only true way of pleasing ourselves. When our desires are in line with God's desires, it is a good because we reflect God's mind and heart. Loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength will result in greater joy in the present because your hope, the thing that you are looking for, longing for, waiting for, is already present. By faith, not yet by sight, but your hope is Jesus himself, the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, the one who has seated you in him in the heavenly places. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. And with the present reality of that hope, there is nothing on this earth that can diminish your joy. Oh, Lord, our God, how we thank you that you have sent us your word, your word which we have heard and believed and received and accepted as truly the word of God. Help us to live in that hope to live in that joy, to live in that peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.